This is your Manchester Stories. Jim Hancock has been a broadcaster and political writer for over 40 years and has interviewed every Prime Minister from Harold Wilson to Boris Johnson. He was Granada TV's political correspondent from 1987 to 1994 and political editor of BBC Northwest from 1998 to 2006. Jim is now in demand as a conference chair, broadcaster and media trainer. You can read about Jim's take on the week's events in politics and business across the north of the UK on his blog, Hancock's Half Page. So welcome, Jim. Thank you you very much for joining us. I'm really excited to talk to you um, about your journey. So if we can start from the very beginning, can you tell us a bit about where you grew up? I grew up in Plymouth, uh, a city which I remain very, very proud of. Um, My mother had a ladies' fashion business in pretty near the centre of Plymouth, and I was born in 1948, which was just after the war, and the evidence of the huge damage that was done to Plymouth, the Plymouth Blitz was truly horrific and uh, tore the heart out of the old city. And uh, so my mother's shop was just across the road from houses that still had the scars of the war and uh, led to the complete uh, reconfiguration of of Plymouth City Centre, which ultimately and rather sadly involved the demolition of my home. Oh, no. Yes, yeah. We, we knew from the mid-1950s onwards that the, there was a plan devised by a man called Abercrombie for because it was almost like a blank sheet for an architect because there had been so much damage to reconfigure mm-hmm. Plymouth. And anybody who knows the city knows that it's sort of set out on a sort of grid basis and most of the buildings, well, they went up in, in my childhood and they're now some of them looking slightly the worse for wear but it, it's sort of a bit like some people unkindly have said it's a bit like a sort of a Soviet type city you know because it's sort of streets and so on mm. um, but uh, that's that's where, where I, I grew up I, over, over the shop and do you, do you still have connections down in Plymouth yes um, my grandparents brought a house in um, a village just across the, the, the border um, and I, I, I've, I've still retained that, and uh, so that I, I go down there um, quite a lot, and increasing amounts now that I've, I've retired from the BBC. Um, but I, I have to. <laughs> my main remaining connection is with the um, football team, Plymouth Argyle, right. which I'm very, very passionate about. But I have to tell you, this interview is being done four or five days after oh. we were relegated on goal difference from the what I continue to call the third division, because I don't accept these championships and premierships and so on. Um, but it has been a passion of my life, and uh, so I, I still do retain a connection with that. And I'm, you know, I've talked about the, uh, the bomb damage and so on, but I, I do retain a great affection for my city. You know, it is unique. Plymouth Hoe, the Pilgrim Fathers, were about to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower going to America. I've been to the Plymouth Plantation, in, in the United States as well, where they where they ended up, uh, and you know, and the and the, the University of Plymouth has expanded massively, mm. very near to where I used to live. Actually, it was um, a small college when I I lived at the uh, on the same street. At the end of that street now is the big campus of Plymouth University, and its expertise in um, uh, maritime studies and the aquarium there. Yeah, it's, it's a world centre of actions. It's called you know the UK's ocean city and um, so I remain very proud of it. Mm. So I, I guess it kind of leads us nicely to your journey to Manchester, so mm. from, from Plymouth by the sea to um, landlocked Manchester. Uh, yeah, it, it was, it was an, and this is quite an important part of the story uh, because though I was um, 
uh, brought up in Plymouth. I went to school at um, a Methodist college in North Devon, right in the heart of North Devon, a place called Shebia College, which had been founded by the uh, Methodists in the uh, 1840s. Uh, so uh, I was an only child and my parents thought it was the best idea for me to go to a boarding school. So I spent, I went to a, a preparatory school nearby, but this is absolutely in the heart of North Devon. It's sort of halfway between Biddeford and Oakhampton, right in the heart of North Devon. And so I spent 11 years there from 1956 to 1967. Mm. And in the autumn of 1966, we all had a, a sort of career, you know, future careers meeting. Um, uh, what, would, what were we going to do? with our future careers and um, you've got this huge thick book of university courses to go through and I have to say that the sort of careers advice was fairly rudimentary and we were left very much to our own devices as to which higher education degree courses to apply for and I'd like to sort of tell you it was I did a very sophisticated decision and so on but quite frankly, I mean, I applied to, I think, a couple of London, St Mary's College and places like that. But I put Manchester at the top of my list because, <laughs> well, two things, really. I, I sort of felt that my sort of, and it was quite an idyllic life in North Devon. Mm. You know, it was a beautiful part of the A bit isolated, but, you know, and I, I sort of felt to myself, I need to see other parts of the country. Yeah. But also, of course, it was the time of George Best, Bobby Charlton, Dennis Law, and also Manchester City were, were doing very well as well. And that was part of my motivation for applying for a general arts course at Manchester University uh, with, you know, not a great deal of thought for a decision that was to absolutely and profoundly change the direction of my life. It's amazing, isn't it? I think quite a lot of people, when you talk to them about the University of Manchester, the draw of the football side moving to Manchester for people that are from you know all over the world, different parts of the country, it's quite it's it's interesting, isn't it? That just football can draw people to a city. Yes, it's funny. Yeah. And also that feeling that I wanted to to see what experience something, something completely different. different and my to, goodness, I yeah. did. Yeah. So where where did where did were you always interested in politics? Where did the politics and journalism come from? I think I was always interested in, in politics, and I do remember writing, uh, doing my as a, as a as a as a young teenager, sort of making up newspapers. I, I would sort of, you know, work on stories from the news and uh, make up um, pretend newspapers. You know, which I sometimes got my parents to read and things like that. So there was an element of uh, element of that, but um, I'm, I'm sure we want to take the story more in more in stages. But eventually, you know, after doing six years here. A, a, a BA and then starting to do an MA. My focus was on teaching, and and I I, I, I sort of thought of going back to the West Country to be a teacher. Oh. And it wasn't until later on that I um, that I something happened here that uh, led to my broadcasting. But I mean, just to just to go through, should I tell yeah. you sort of go through yeah, the story yeah, a little do. bit of my time? Yeah. You know, so there I there I was the first day, and I came up from. North Devon, um, you know, and having made this choice to come to Manchester University, I didn't come here until the day before I registered to be a student. And I came up with my father, and the first thing I said to him was, why are all the buildings painted black? 
because you know the Whitworth Hall and all those buildings now that are beautiful honey coloured and so on yeah. in 1967 they were black and they were black because of the pollution yeah and in fact the Clean Air Act had only recently come in and in my first couple of winters here there were still pea supers you know when it was really still and there's that horrible smoky smog which had caused caused all this and and it was a real shock coming here and uh, I mean I was a student in Dalton Hall in uh, Victoria Park and very friendly community and so on but it was a real shock for me I bet it was and I don't think I got the most out of university life for quite a while and it was indeed a motivation for me when after I got my first degree to, 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 to stay here and do, do an MA I used to attend the student union political meetings with great interest because it was a very turbulent time mm. I mean 1967 the in, in my first year you know, the summer of 1968, the Paris um, student demonstrations and all that sort of thing, and there were occupations here. There was a big controversy over whether the vice chancellor was keeping files on uh, on troublesome students. It was a it was a really turbulent time, but I was very much a spectator of all that. This is something I really need to emphasise. Yeah. You know, I I went to the meetings, but I did not participate. I did not speak, um, and I did my. Um, my course and then in 69 my course tutor Peter Lowe uh, I, was, I, I, I mean with, with general arts you, I mean I did Roman civilization, English history and government and um, but history was my passion and Peter uh, was my tutor in my last year of my undergraduate course uh, and he became a very very good friend of mine in later life and um, but when I when I got my degree in 1970 I felt I wanted I still had I could get more out of university life, so I started to do a, a master's degree, and um, and, uh, and and then in the spring of 1972, um, during the presidential election, uh, I met a chap called Nick Brown, who's now the Labour chief whip, um, and we became firm friends. And he was a great political strategist and. Uh, he said, "You know, uh, I, I, you know, he 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 failed to be elected president, uh, but he said, you know, you could be president." I said, "Don't be ridiculous! I've never spoken at a meeting." Uh, and anyway, he plotted a course for me. I was elected wow. senior student of my hall of residence, and that got me onto the student union council. And um, in '72, we had this election, um, which I won narrowly. How, wow. So you'd never spoken at all, and then, really. and then, and then and Nick just kind of orchestrated, yes, orchestrated your it. rise. Yeah, orchestrated it. And uh, I think there was a feeling, it was, it was a feeling, I think, after there'd been these years of great sort of turbulence and, um, and sort of left-wing agitation, that things were settling down a bit. Because I was certainly not the preferred candidate of the... Uh, student establishment in the in the student union. It was, I mean, the student union was run a on a little bit of a cliquey basis. Well, that was certainly our, the thrust of our mm. our campaign, uh, saying that the halls of residence, you know, Owens Park and all the traditional halls should be represented more in the university community. So, but it was it was a shock victory by 
about 12 votes and I'd got quite a lot of votes from a great mate of mine who was in a dental school <laughs> which never voted and couldn't care less about student politics very low count but he, he was well regarded in the dental school and got the people to vote for me and so on so I, um, I was elected president Am I right in thinking that some people objected to that? Or? Well they, they, they did because we lost a lot of money uh, um, we lost a lot of money on a band called Steppenwolf they had one big hit, Born to be Wild, and we booked them in. And uh, it's very interesting thinking about prices and so on. Because <coughs> I, I said to the social secretary, we're going to have to charge a pound a head for them to play. And they played in the end, main debating hall in those days. You know, the, I mean, the bands that played at, at, the, at the Manchester University Students' Union, if you look back on it, some of the greatest bands, The Who and all this sort of thing, Rolling Stone, playing on that sort of fairly tiny stage. Yeah. Um, but you know that those were the only venues in those days. This was all pre-stadium, stadium concerts. You know that wasn't even conceived. So we lost money, and there was a big row about it. And um, my opponents tried to remove me, but um, despite uh, uh, despite that, I I managed to win a vote of confidence. Um, I lost a vote of confidence in the students' union, but I demanded a referendum of everybody, and uh, and I and I and I won and carried on as being president for the rest of the year. But it was, it was one of the most interesting years of my life. Mm. Despite everything that's happened subsequently and what we're going to come on to, being president of the Students' Union, I mean, apart from anything else, the bar was one of the largest turnovers retail for, for, for a licensed premises in the north of England. Wow. It was huge, you know, because it, there, weren't, there weren't that many places in the, in the Manchester of the early 1970s. And uh, I had, I, they, so I, I employed, you know, the bar manager, the, the, the union manager, who was a man who was not particularly enamoured of the motions that were being passed in the, in the student un, in the student union, and it was a bit like a dynamic you get with, with a sort of cabinet minister, you know, because he would come into it, look at this motion, you know. I said, you know, Mr. Fraser, he was an old colonial officer, I think. I said, that's that's what the students want, you know. Your job is to is to manage this building and so on. And so I was, at, I was 23, but there was a heck of a lot of responsibility on my shoulders. I had to sack people. Yeah. I had to try and, you know, deal with the political side of things. And then I, and then I had to meet the university administration, which had begun to adopt student representation on, 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 on the university, but it wasn't wholly accepted that the role of students like it is now, where it's actively encouraged by the Office for Students. And um, so I'd have to go over and, and present my case over there. So there was, it was a whole range of experiences mm. which really held me in good stead. And, and of course, there was media attention. I mean, I met some of my uh, best friends, uh, David Davis, who went on to be the chief executive of the Football Association, was a young reporter when I had a rent strike. I organised a rent strike because of student hall fees. And he came and interviewed me, and he's been a lifelong friend as well. So all that, that came along. So the, that, that one year, did, how did that kind of impact where you would kind of go on to? Well, um, one, obviously, the, then as now, the university administration uh, was made up the... Board of Governors was made up of academics, university officers, and also business people from outside. And one of the business people uh, uh, who was a board member of Manchester University was a man called Norman Quick, 
who had a um, big Ford car dealership network across the north of England. And uh, we had some robust exchanges uh, at, at committee meetings. Robust exchanges, I yes. like that term. Yes, it's a euphemism good one. <laughs> And one day he said to me, um, you know, what are you going to do when you finish your year of office? I said, oh, I'm going to go back and complete my master's degree. He said, oh, nonsense. He said, you know, you know, enough time in, in education. I said, well, it's funny you should say that because I see that your, your name, you're a director of the new commercial radio station that's about to be set up in Manchester because the Conservative government had, al- had allowed uh, the development of commercial radio. There had been the pirate ships which had broadcast... I mean, because it's, it's quite a slight diversion here. It's, it's really interesting, you know, the, the, the big explosion in popular culture and pop music, the Beatles and so on, yeah. um, you know, which you can sort of date from the early 1960s. But the main outlet for that was the BBC Light programme <laughs> with Alan Freeman doing the Top of the Pops on a Sunday afternoon. You know, there, weren't, there wasn't a great outlet for it. So these pirate ships set up just outside the territorial waters and broadcast pop music... Yeah. Uh, Radio Radio Caroline, Radio London. Um, And then it was closed down by the Labour government. They made it impossible to supply the ships. But the Conservatives said, we will allow formal competition for the BBC. And so in the autumn of 73, they set up Capital Radio and LBC in London. And we were the next, I think, BRMB in Birmingham in February of 74. And and then Piccadilly Radio was the next. So... Um, he, he said to me, um, I said, you know, I see you, you, you know, you're going to be involved with this. Um, and I was beginning to sort of go off the teaching thing that I talked mm-hmm. to you about and was thinking about sort of journalism broadcasting. So I said, uh, you know, could I work for you? And he said, well, I'll set up a meeting with the managing director. And he, he said to me, well, we're not on the air yet. We're not on the air until April 74. So anyway, I did a job for him uh, for a year as his, he was based in London, from a man called Philip Birch. And I was his representative in Manchester, liaising with building contractors as we built the studios underneath the Piccadilly Hotel. It was yeah. just on Portland Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was a fascinating experience in itself um, because I, I had to deal with all these building contractors. But I also had record um, record company pluggers coming in saying, you know, because they were really, really looking forward to getting their records played on this They're commercial radio station. You. Yeah, <laughs> and I said, well, I must explain, I'm not going to be a DJ. <laughs> I, I aspire, and that, that was the deal. I do this work for the chief executive, and then I'd have a chance to broadcast. So I said, oh, never mind, man, you know, you must come to, and I used to go to receptions with the four tops and all these sort of people, because I was like the only representative of this new commercial radio station. And then we went on there, and, and what, what you need to understand about the commercial radio is that um, in those days it was quite heavily regulated, and they had to do quite a lot of news and current affairs, uh, although pop music was the main, the main thing. And so I went on air, and my first programme, it was a phone-in, and I read out my introduction, I said, right, let's take the calls. That sounds nerve-wracking. And there was no calls. Oh, And the right. programme controller <laughs> had to come in and save me. But anyway, things settled down, and I, I got huge experience in the late 1970s. Um, I was largely left to my own devices, which may or may not have been a good thing, um, to learn my journalism, to cover local local government and mm. stuff like that. 
and um, uh, and that's how, that's how my broadcasting career got underway. It was all you know, sort of who you know and all that sort of thing, not the sort of formal recruitment procedures that prevail a bit more now. So was there always kind of the political interest there? So even while you were doing that, were you always interested in kind of politics and going down that route, or did it evolve? No, I mean, I, I, politics was what I wanted to do, but I, <laughs> I had a number of other responsibilities, including producing and um, chatting to a man who was absolutely had a huge collection of vinyl records because the other thing was that the music output had to be diverse it couldn't just be pop music so there were programs dedicated to band music from the 1930s which was the one I did the golden years of melody with a lovely man called Eddie Brownsell and I had to link 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 stuff I, I wasn't in the least interested to be honest but that was one of my responsibilities I also had to do football reports from Berry uh, for five or six years, I was the Berry football reporter. Um, so there was a it was a mix of things and doing phone-ins on gardening and legal Everything. advice and all that sort of thing. <laughs> but politics was the main thing I wanted to do. Um, so you get into politics and then Harold Wilson was the first prime minister that you. Well, uh, I need to qualify that. I mean, uh, just 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 very very briefly. I mean, uh, when I finished the Piccadilly, I did a. Um, a, year, a year or so with the BBC television as a general reporter when the BBC was based at Piccadilly Gardens the, the regional headquarters was in Piccadilly Gardens before it ever met, moved to Oxford Road <laughs> which is now now demolished yeah. um, and then moved to Media City um, and then I went down to London to work for Independent Radio News at, at, at Westminster um, Harold Wilson I interviewed um after he, a good 10 years after he was Prime Minister, so it's a slight cheat, I suppose. I didn't interview him when he was Prime Minister because he ceased to be Prime Minister <laughs> in, in 76. I, mean, I, I might, have, might, have, might have done that, actually, but the, the main interview I did with him was about his whole life. Um, and, uh, and, and then at various points I interviewed other, 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 other Prime Ministers. But what's it like to interview a Prime Minister? Has there been any kind of... It's changed. It changed. It changed over the years. Um, I mean, my, my first memory was not Harold Wilson himself, who I did as a sort of retrospective. Um, it was uh, Jim Callaghan, who was the prime minister in the late nineteen seventies, and it was relatively relaxed. Um, obviously, as time went on, um, you know, coming up to to Tony Tony Blair, things were much more controlled. You know, and mm. what are you going to ask, and all this sort of thing, and. But access to politicians has changed fundamentally. I mean, very early on in my career, um, I mean, the first election I covered was Ted Heath's last election when he was defeated and Mrs. Thatcher was elected leader of the Conservative Party. And she had a, one of her top advisors was a man called Keith Joseph. And you've got to remember that um, in the post-war period, there was a sort of consensus among both Conservative and Labour that the government had a certain level of responsibility for companies if they failed, you know, that they'd come in and support them. And I interviewed Sir Keith Joseph, and, and, and this, went, this interview went on and on. There was nobody, you know, in my later career, you know, pointing at their watch, and you can have two questions or one question soundbite. You know, I had this man, and he sat down and we recorded on an old <laughs> reel-to-reel Ewer tape recorder, about half an hour of discussion. And we were talking about 
economic support and what Mrs. Thatcher would do, you know. And eventually I said to him, I said, Sir Keith, it appears that, you know, if a company was failing, you know, a major company with thousands of jobs, that you don't seem to feel that the government should have any responsibility for that. And he said, oh, you're far gone down that road of, you know, government support. And it, it indicated very early on the huge change that would take place in exact we're doing this conversation in May, 40 years exactly after she came to power, where no longer would the government prop up companies, and you know it led to wide-scale unemployment. But it, it just illustrates the sort of access that you one would get. Yeah. Did, did you ever feel, because um, as as you know, a lay person kind of watching this, you never really feel like you know these politicians. Like there's. There's a facade there. Do you ever feel like, I guess maybe it's changed over the years, do you ever feel like you actually get to know them in any way, shape or form? Um, the, na the national ones, not really. And one of the things that, because I'm sure you're going to come on to this, because I had a rather, I was, I, my career, I've bounced between Westminster and, and the North West. Um, uh, one of the things I've valued about being a regional correspondent for Granada and then later the BBC was that I did get to know my local MPs. I, I did get to know a bit more how they ticked. Whereas on the, at the Westminster end, it's it, it never really. I, mean, I, I guess if I'd stuck with it, it would have changed. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure Laura Kunzberg knows the cabinet members personally as well. Because you've got to develop personal relationships in order to get the stories. Mm. And, and you know, you'd learn things about people, about their personal background. you sometimes meet their partners. And what I always felt about the North West was that it was big enough to be really important, but small enough to be a sort of village that I could cope with, you know, knowing the local government leaders. And that was an important part of my work as well, which I think sometimes is neglected by uh, the political coverage we get, because I think local government is really important. And I always regarded this covering local government as almost as, as important as covering what MPs were doing either at Westminster or in the region. Um, yeah, so I, I valued that. So is that what kind of drew you back up northwest? Well, I mean, what happened was I I, I um, went down to Independent Radio News at Westminster for for a couple of years. It was great fun working with a, a guy who became a great broadcaster, Peter Allen. Uh, and he recently retired from Five Live. He was the political editor, and we <laughs> we operated out of. Um, uh, a building right opposite Big Ben, which was condemned and, and was going to be redeveloped into what is now Portcullis House, but it was a very old-fashioned building with a staircase up uh, up the top. And uh, I actually initially went down to work for the BBC, and they were just across the landing. And Peter Allen poached me for IRN. I, I worked there for two years, but then I got married, and we wanted to have children, so I came back and did another stint at Piccadilly, and then um, went on to my my job at Granada and then in 94 I got the bug again to go back to Westminster and I got a job as a national BBC broadcaster but almost immediately um, for family you know it was I mean my family didn't want to move down initially they said my wife said well I'll move down eventually um, and I just I just realized that that Westminster thing although important wasn't where I wanted to be, so I came back fairly fairly promptly, and then um, did two years on the breakfast show with Victoria Derbyshire on Radio Manchester, and then my last job was was as political editor of the BBC in the North West. 
Wow, always draws you back, Manchester. So, the, so yes, it was it was it was per- personal mm. personal uh, reasons pulling me back, but also I felt quite fulfilled in in covering the northwest. Uh, yeah. You know, it was an important job, uh, and you you know, when, you know especially when they set up the BBC um, political editor's job, um, you were often tied into doing national broadcasting to describe what was going on in the region. Yeah. So going back to your encounters with um, prime ministers that you've met, is yes. there any particular memorable moments? Well, I'll give you three. Go on. Um, I mean, M- Mrs. Thatcher, you know, she was a, a force of nature, you know, and actually liked, quite liked a combative interview. And I remember one particular occasion when they were privatising the water industry and she... Um, I said to her, but you know, all they'll be interested in is making profits. And she had this black gloved hand and sort of stuck her finger in my face and said, Profits? Aren't Granada Television interested in making profits? <laughs> and um, the, the press officer for her said to her, I'm sorry, Jim, she's had a slightly long day, you know. I said, Bill, I said, it's perfect. The response is, is fine. It, it shows, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a res, it's a valid response to the question, and it also shows her, um, you know, for the sort of feisty yeah. campaigner that, that, that she was. Um, with John Major, uh, possibly my biggest nightmare. Uh, this is 1996, and, you know, he's running out of time to call a general election, and of course, New Labour were absolutely on the march, you know, everyone sort of knew that Tony Blair was going to come to power. And it was a question of whether he was going to have an election in 1996. And the new technology had just come in uh, with the sort of um, uh, digital recorders. And I was given this digital recorder to record this interview with him. Uh-oh. <laughs> and uh, also in the room was someone from the Press Association. So I said, you know, amongst other things, I said... Um, well, I, I, there, were, there were two memorable things. The, new, the news line was, I said to him, you know, this has gone on, this is sort of sort of I said, you know, you're running out of time to call an election this year. And he said, there won't be a general election this year. Big news story. And I also said to him, I said, Prime Minister, with the best will in the world, you know, there's a tide in the affairs of politics and it's, 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 it's going out for you, you know, everyone senses that the Conservatives have been in office for a long time now and the momentum is with New Labour. And it was the pause before he gave me the sort of ritual answer about we want another term in office, because you knew that he, you could interpret that pause as being your right. And, you know, in interviews, sometimes uh, things are rat-a-tat-tat, quick fire, but sometimes it's the pauses, particularly if you're doing a television interview, and you can tell in their eyes what, what they're thinking, so that, that, that there, was, there was that. So, the Press Association phoned over this, you know, and uh, immediately the BBC in London come out, okay, we, you know, we need that clip, you know, the Prime Minister's called off the election, so I said, fine. So I pressed the button, and what I didn't realise was it had to do something called a cum edit, i.e. that although the stuff had, was on the, on the machine, it had to assemble itself before, you, and you shouldn't turn the whole power off on the machine, oh. which I did, and so the interview wasn't there. 
What, ha- what happened? Did you get in trouble or anything? Not really. I mean, it was just it was one of those things. It was new technology. Mm. and uh, But, you know, it was pretty embarrassing cause, because, the, you know, the, the story was there, but there was yeah. no clip to go with it. Oh. So it led me to an aversion for new technology. And then and just finally, uh, t- 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 Tony Blair, the last time I interviewed him, I said, um, uh, well, I said, this, you know, because I got on reasonably well with him. Um, I said, uh, you know, before the 2005 election, I said, you know, if we, as Shakespeare said in Julius Caesar, if we meet again, we'll smile. If not, this parting was well made. <laughs> Blair said, yes. And look what happened to Julius Caesar. <laughs> so those are those are some of the some of the encounters with uh, with, with with prime ministers. Is it is it um, hard to pers- like uh, presuming you have personal opinions on politics? Is it? Hard or easy to put that aside and be kind of neutral and unbiased. I've not, I've not had a problem with it because although I am passionately interested in politics, my political views are fairly lightly held. I've, I've always voted, and I've but I've voted for all you know people from all three political parties. And in one way, uh, sometimes I've voted on personal affections for them or because mm. I like them, you know. Uh, which can go right across the party. So I, I've not had really strong views. I, I, I genuinely can see everyone's um, p- point of view. You know, I could make a case for all, all the political parties. I mean, uh, on the, cu- the current issue, I mean, there's no point in, in disguising this because I write a weekly blog. I am, now that I'm free of d- the BBC discipline, I am a huge Remainer. You know, I mean, I, I, I think this is a dreadful mistake. But in terms of day-to-day politics, you know, high taxation, bigger public services, these are these are complex questions. And it might surprise you to know that um, I actually don't regard politicians as charlatans and shysters. I actually think that the vast majority of them, at local council level and at MP level, make great sacrifices to mm. be members of parliament or, or to council. The time they give up, the the career prospects, especially councillors who have to forego. Um, and I think they're handling very difficult decisions. And, you know, with an electorate that sometimes is unrealistic about what to expect from a country which is, well, let's say our world role is con- contracted. So, um, uh, you know, I've, I, 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 I've sort of enjoyed doing that. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I do have, have respect for them. Mm. And talking about your your blog did that come out of did that come as a result of brexit or has it been going a long time well i mean i i took a decision in 2006 um to re- to retire from the bbc i wasn't even f- i was just just about to turn 59 um you know the decision which i slightly regret now but one of the things that's happened in my lifetime is the is the sort of huge generational expectation that's undertaken because I sort of thought 60 was knocking on a bit to be a frontline broadcaster and I look around now at some of my colleagues who are still in position you know at 70 and doing a fine job um, but things have changed completely you know that now you know and I look at my children and you know you sort of think oh they must get a job and they must and actually they mustn't you know in their 20s they can experiment because they're going to be working till 70 and possibly living till 100 and that change of perception 
But anyway, um, so I've had a very long <laughs> semi-retirement, and 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 I, and I was though I decided to, to to retire, I was obsessed with the idea of vast acres of unstructured time, as I would call <laughs> it. You know, well, if you think about your life, you're in education, and yeah. then you're in work, and then. You know, suddenly, and it is for some people suddenly, and they often die quite quickly. Nothing, you know, you've yeah. got completely free time. So I've I decided to fill my life with, uh, you know, stayed involved with the university. I mean, I was on the board of this university whilst with the merger with uh, UMIS. Um, uh, I do things in my own community in Lim. We've got a fairly lively um, village life in Lim near Warrington with the festival and things like that. But semi-professionally, I decided to do media training, hosting conferences, um, and also um, writing. I mean, I, I since, since I retired, I did a column for the Manchester Evening News for a while, the Liverpool Daily Post, and latterly, um, I've done this blog for a um, business organisation called Downtown and Business. So I've written for them since uh, 2012. So... Interestingly, I, I, I mean, obviously I was a broadcast journalist. I hadn't done much writing. And so writing about politics has been something that's sort of come upon me in the, in, in the later years. Mm. And you, you mentioned you've kind of gone on to a range of different things and you chair some of our your, your Manchester Insights series and you've covered all sorts of topics from HS2, antibiotic resistance and fracking. Do you find that this still weaves in the political elements? Yeah, well, the thing about politics is that, of course, it affects everything. One of the things that attracted me to cover politics is that everything is, in a sense, a political decision. You know, decisions that are made about the health service or, or energy or foreign affairs. It all involves... I mean, politics is... I mean, the definition of it is people having to reach conclusions about how things are run. I mean, if one was looking for a sort of definition of it... So the things that you mention, um, uh, yeah, ha have have come across my path. I mean, obviously, some of the clients I've worked for in terms of hosting conferences, for instance, the HS2 uh, thing was a few years ago. I brought, you know, these conferences were bringing together civil engineers from all over the the country in in the places where the railway industry is in Ashford, in Kent, uh, Derby, Longside, Manchester. So that 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 was quite interesting. It was a sort of a different different. Different, different field to, to operate in, and, and but in a way, it's, it's a continuation of my life because you know when you're covering political issues, you'd also often have to illustrate it by going to a factory or talking to people about the development of things. So, uh, in, in that sense, that that lovely potpourri of being in contact with lots of people. I mean, <laughs> I I think I'm not talking about specialist journalists now, but I think journalists generally are interested in a wide range of things to a shallow extent. I wouldn't claim to be profoundly expertise, have expertise in things. Um, but I know a, a little about a lot. Yeah. Sounds like a good place to be. <laughs> Would you, do you ever feel um, like in today's kind of current climate of Brexit and things like that, do you ever wish you were still kind of doing your old role oh yes I mean I mean the, the other regret I've got I don't I don't want to you know there's, no, there's nothing worse than someone you know moaning about decisions they take we're all responsible for decisions we take but in 2006 if you told me that within a, a few years we'd be into 
um, a coalition government in 2010, um, a Scottish referendum, a referendum on our membership of the European Union, and Jeremy Corbyn, who I knew in the 1970s as an mm. activist, being leader of the opposition, you know, and, and you have the opportunity to report all that, you'd be a fool to say, you know, you wouldn't like to have been centrally involved. I mean, I have done, I, do, I still do some broadcasting when yeah. I'm asked to by the, by the BBC and, uh, and others. But, um, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, it has been a, an extraordinary, an extraordinary period. Yeah, it must be amazing to think, you know, I can't even get my head around what's going to happen next, to be honest. can't even get, get my head around what's happening now. <laughs> no, well, you're, you and me both. I mean, uh, <laughs> this will be out of date, no doubt, before it's um, broadcast. But um, I had a discussion with my younger son, who I don't know why, but he's developed a very close interest in politics. <laughs> and almost everything that you can think of to try and break this impasse, you can make a very plausible argument for why it can't happen. That includes a general election, yeah. another hung parliament. New prime minister doesn't change the maths at Westminster. If um, Corbyn and May, I mean, that this is mind-boggling. If they do a deal, are there still enough anti-customs union conservatives and pro-people's vote Labour MPs? Even if Corbyn and May do a deal, that could still be voted down. So we concluded that come Halloween be asking for another extension and another extension and so it goes on because and 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 again this is comes back to my other thing you know there's a huge criticism of, of MPs about the impasse but the truth of the matter there are two great truths here one was uh, David Cameron in my opinion irresponsibly imposed a plebiscite on a representative parliament we elect MPs and they use their judgment and since 1973, their judgment has been that it was in the interest of this country to be members of the European Union. The, in my opinion, the way to change that would have been for Mr Farage uh, to uh, you know, head up a party which wins a general election to take us out. But instead, we've had this plebiscite imposed on MPs who normally use their own judgment telling them to do something that the vast majority of them know is not in the interest of this country. And that is why there's this huge tension. And blaming them for not coming to a conclusion is to miss the point. Mm. Because the nation is divided virtually down the middle. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, it's, the most, it's the most excruciating problem. And it's nobody's... Well, it's David Cameron's fault, because he was spooked by UKIP. But it's nobody else's fault that we're in this position. And it's almost intractable. Mm. Do you have any thoughts, and like say it's probably going to be out of date, on what's going to happen? <laughs> Do you have any sort of prediction? Um, I, I, well, I, I, when I said it, uh, Halloween will be asking another extension, I, th I think there'll be an attempt to avoid that. But I can, I can see a scenario where, you know, after the European elections, it's going to be really interesting whether, um, how people vote, because in, in one way, people really need to vote... <laughs> either Brexit, for the Brexit Party or for the Liberal Democrats. Mm. Uh, the danger is, of course, that with Change UK and the Greens and obviously still the Conservatives, and Labour, the, the Remain vote will be fractured all over yeah. the place and, and Farage will win a, a big vote and say this is effectively a second referendum and the people, you know. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. But then I presume Mrs May will be under intense pressure to go in the summer and there'll be a leadership election that'll take till the autumn. 
and and then we're up against the clock. Then we're only six weeks before the next deadline. So I I can see it just going going on and on. Um, I I I. I I did come off the idea of a people's vote. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I really think there's great merit in saying that we now know far more about it than the easy slogans of 2016, and that really people should be asked, is this really what you want? I came off it because I do fear for our social cohesion. I'm, I'm no doubt at all that people who disagree with me are very passionate about it and are very angry about being asked again, and I do worry that it could unleash extremes and that's why I mm. temporarily said no we can't have a second vote but I then thought I'm not going to be intimidated by that and I you know so so I think eventually and, and uh, you know if we go on three and a half four years since the vote it, the mandate's quite stale for that you know we have general elections every five years yeah. you know so, you know four years ago people voted this so I think the the staleness of the mandate could be a factor in going back to the British people but I couldn't forecast to you that a, a new vote would be like 60-40 to remain or anything like that. I think it could be yeah. quite tight again. And then yeah. you get this argument about whether, whether it's settled. I mean, it's, it's very, very strange because if Cameron hadn't done this, when people were asked before, you know, where Europe was on their list of priorities, it was way down. The health service, crime, the economy. But now... It's become something that identifies people, quite apart from politics. You know, people are Remainers or Leave, and, and there is a presumption about what sort of person you are Yeah. based on that. And that's how that's going to pan out Yeah. is quite difficult. It's very difficult. So if there's any students listening that are inspired by the current political kind of climate to work in the media or work in politics what what advice would you give them um in one sense for young people there are huge opportunities now um you know because the media the media is much more diverse you know there are a lot masses more television channels and radio channels than when i started off so that there are huge opportunities but um there are also difficulties you know in terms of how do you make a career when there's so many choices how do you emerge from the throng how do you get in and all that sort of thing so I, I don't underestimate it but I have I have got I've written down some some ideas here um, I, I do think obviously you know you can take media media studies and all that sort of thing although I, I do caution that media studies does not guarantee anything at all um, I think getting Two things I'd principally say is, if, if you want to go into, into sort of journalism, thing, is to have ideas about how stories could be covered or you've got programme ideas, you know, new ideas or developments of ideas. You know, approaching an employer saying, I want to be in the media, I want to present television programmes, is, is really facile. I mean, you know, we all want various things, but that doesn't... That doesn't inspire an employer. Mm. You know, they, what they want to hear is what you, what contribution can you make? What ideas have you got for my programme? What constructive criticism have you got on my programme? You know, what, what, what do you want to do with that? Um, I, 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 I am concerned that there's an awful lot of in, unpaid internments in the media 
I don't re I don't believe in that. I think people should be paid for for what they do. But I have to be realistic that you know sometimes the answer is that you need to get your foot in the door, and you know working for a website company or a radio station just to volunteer, do something, um, you know, however however uninteresting it might seem. Because once you, if you can get into an organisation, you can show people who are inside what you can do. And that's a, a, a better way than the endless application form. Sometimes one's got to do that. Mm. And, but I've suggested that putting ideas down in application forms, but actually trying, you know, and there are ways that people can, can do that. And if people do get the opportunity for an attachment to somebody to really use it, I mean, I, I can give you some horror stories about people who came on attachments to me and sat in the newsroom reading the newspaper. Now, I didn't have time all day to talk to them, and I mean, I tried to help, but I had to get on with my job. And some, some of them, the better ones, would ask me questions. Why are you doing this? And nobody's going to object to that. Mm. Show a lively interest. But some people just didn't seem to realise the golden moment they were having there. And they just didn't, didn't take the opportunity. So be lively. Um, use attachments well. Um, and, and always bear in mind that the editors and producers of programmes are far more important than people like me who appear in front of the camera. It's the glamour job to appear. You know, it's a great job. I, you know, I've been really lucky in my life to present programmes. And uh, But, you know, I only... It's producers and editors who make the overall decisions about the subjects to be covered, the shape of programmes and things like that. So people should, in terms of broadcasting, should think about the wide range of jobs that are available. And, of course, the big change is now... Um, um, blogging and things like that and uh, I mean I listen every week to the media show with the wonderful Anil Rajan who's the BBC's media editor and that's certainly a program I'd urge young people to listen to because Anil is really on top of the development of new media mm -hmm. and frequently reminds us that some quite young people are doing really well by bypassing the formal structures of media completely I mean this is just I just heard this week, there's a, a, I think there's a boy of about nine years old who opens toys and talks about toys. Yes, yeah, yeah. He's made about 20 on million. On YouTube, and That's unboxing, right. yeah, yeah. He's, he's almost a millionaire. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Apparently kids are hypnotised by it, aren't they? They just watch yeah. these videos. So, the, so there's an opportunity to bypass all this and, yeah. do it, and do it yourself. But, of course, but it goes back to my original point, there's an awful lot of this going on. Mm. So emerging How from the noise... You... Is, yeah, is, you know, you need you a USP, but he, yeah. he found it. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. That's brilliant advice. Yeah. So, last question: mm -hmm. if you, if we were to give you fifty pounds, fifty pounds in your pocket, we'll let you have access to our time machine if you need it. Where or what time in Manchester would you go? I, I, yeah, I, I've given some thought to this, and it, it it is a very topical time, which would be the Peterloo of yes. two hundred years ago. I would like to have been in the Manchester of those days, partly to see this terrible event that took place and all the implications it had, but also to see the Manchester of those days, which, you know, had had, had this extraordinary expansion, you know, from was it 1750 or something, when it was a small town, and all these people crowding in from the rural areas to work in the developing textile industries and so on. 
I mean, that must have been a, a stupendous change in about 50 years in this in this city's development. Mm. With you know, no thought given to the things that we take for granted now, but where they're going to live, what would their conditions have been, were the children going to be educated? I mean, none of that. It was just focused on we found the coal, we found that cotton doesn't break in the wet climate of Manchester, and we're going to provide the cotton goods for the emerging British Empire and you know this huge change mm. and for a long time no no political representation for it you know nobody was thinking about this but then you started to get um, you know Orator Hunt and people like that although, he, although the film if you, I don't know if you've seen the film I haven't seen it, yet, no. it is worth seeing because the film's not 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 uncritical of Hunt you know that he was a bit of a bit of a narcissist you know he was you know, he, he, he was full of his own importance, but nevertheless, he articulated the beginning of the development of, you know, because Manchester didn't have an MP. <laughs> it's this huge development of this industrial class in Manchester over a period of about fifty years that come in from the rural areas and into squalor and deprivation. I just think it would have been a fascinating time mm. to be around, not a comfortable time but certainly a, a, an interesting time. You could skip in in the time machine and then come back. I could report on it. <laughs> exactly. Here we are, Jim Hancock, <laughs> 10 o'clock news, Peterloo, Pisa Square. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jim. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Your Manchester Stories. Please rate, review and subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you listen. If you are a graduate of the University of Manchester, you can connect with us at your.manchester.ac.uk. This podcast is produced by Kate Bradbury and Haley jane Sims on behalf of the Division of Development and Alumni Relations at the University of Manchester. The music for this podcast was supplied by Blue Dot Sessions.